Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Ward. He's a philosopher, an author, a Christian. Um, he's an idealist. He's done a lot of really interesting work in philosophy of mind. He's been in conversation with people such as Daniel Dennett. Um, but Keith, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm very well, thanks. And it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today, um, and I'm really excited for this conversation where we're going to be talking about um, some to start off with your work with regards to idealism, and then some more into your more recent book, Sharing in the Divine Nature, um, and with, with regards to like classical theism and the cosmos and the grand story and things like that. Uh, before we get into things like that, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Well, um, I started my working life uh, as teaching philosophy in, in a number of universities. I've been to one or two in America, but uh, mostly in Britain. Uh, and I uh, finished up as what's called the Regius Professor of Divinity at the University of Oxford in the UK. Mm. It was a rather long title. Uh, I also as an adult, in fact, uh, was baptized and confirmed as a Christian. I'm a convert to Christianity. And uh, then I got ordained as a minister in the Church of England. And I ended up there as a canon of Christchurch. That's somebody who helps to run the cathedral um, in Christchurch in Oxford. And uh, so that's it, really. Half my life is academic, teaching philosophy, and then later on theology. And half my life is in the church helping out with local churches that I happen to be near. Yeah. Mm. It's exciting. It sounds like you got a, a, a foot in a little bit of everywhere. Um, so one thing I, I have to ask you here is what got you interested in like philosophy of mind in all these big questions that we're going to be talking about today? What got me interested? Uh, well, hmm. Uh, I think I've always asked questions like that. Um, my parents thought I was mad, probably, or odd, at least. But when I got to university, I found there was a subject which actually asked these questions called philosophy. And of course, like most people who do philosophy at university, I started with Plato. And so that naturally gets you into questions about the mind or the soul, uh, because in the ancient world, they're the same thing. I mean, mind or soul, roughly the same thing, roughly. Uh, so I got interested in, in that, yeah. Uh, so I was interested in the questions before I had any answers. I feel like that's kind of the way it is for all We have all these questions and over time we kind of explore these things um, and see where it takes us. So let's talk about this idea of idealism. You're one of the bigger proponents of this in, in the 20th and 21st century. Um, could you talk about like what idealism is with regards to philosophy of mind? Okay, I think the most uh, popular option probably in America and uh, the UK today is materialism. And though it's hard to define, it's, it's roughly the view that everything that exists is in space and time. There's nothing else. Uh, and the mind is actually just the brain and the neurons in the brain. So there are, there are no special mental events. Uh, there's certainly no God. So that's materialism. And to put it bluntly, idealism is just the opposite of that. It's, it says, actually, <laughs> mind is the most important thing in the universe. There is one super mind, which is the mind of God. And without that mind, there wouldn't be any universe. So that's idealism. Physical, physical things like the universe can't exist without mental things like God. Um, so mind is prior. 
but matter very hard to describe but these days with quantum physics and so on but matter couldn't exist without mind so that's idealism <clears throat> idealism yeah yeah thank you so much for kind of walking through that there um and one thing one question i have for you before we get into some objections for idealism is like why personally do you think like idealism is the be best option out there um with regards to philosophy of mind so if you're going to make like a brief case for idealist um what would you say well i'd say uh, that uh, the first all human knowledge begins with experience. I think nobody could deny that. So experience is something you can't deny because that's where you're beginning your knowledge from. And experience, if you think about it, is thoughts and feelings and intentions and perceptions. And all these are mental phenomena. So if those are the things which you know first, well, you can never deny that they exist. And that's what extreme materialists do. They deny there are such things at all. So I don't know what they're doing when they say they're thinking. Um, but idealism is a very natural thing to think. Once you say knowledge begins with experience, well, um, then you can probably, doing a thought experiment, think, well, there could be perceptions and feelings without any physical body. I mean, there's not, uh, uh, not in our case anyway, but there could be, there's nothing logically impossible. It's not, not absurd. So you've already got the possibility of mental phenomena without physical phenomena. And that, so that I think idealism is the most obvious sort of philosophy and most philosophers throughout history have been idealists by the vast majority of philosophers have been idealists, even if they don't use that word. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. Oh, we're gonna run through some objections here. I sent you a couple and we might go through a few more as we kind of explore this path here. Um, but one of the most common responses I see to like idealists and even maybe like dualists with regards to like philosophy of mind is that um, our own mental experience, our own consciousness is just a product of the brain. Um, we have these physical brains that evolve over time and eventually the conscious experience can kind of just emerge or come out of the brain. Um, so there's obviously different kinds of like physicalism here, but this is kind of like a, a basic understanding of like what a physicalist might argue. So how would you respond to that kind of objection that, well, this mental experience just is something that is a product of the brain? Well, of course, I don't deny that uh, uh, mental experiences depend on the brain in the case mm -hmm. of human beings. Uh, and the sort of experience you have largely depends on your brain, your body, your environment. So our minds are embodied. Right? That's certainly true. The question is whether they can be reduced to physical phenomena. Now, I think it's pretty obvious um, that physical things have properties like mass and position and velocity and extension and spin, you know, a whole lot of physical terms. If you read a physics textbook, these are the things you get. If you don't get anything about value or purpose or feeling, uh, that's not relevant to physics. So I think science uh, gives a very limited view of the world, uh, which neglects questions of what is good, what is bad, neglects questions of beauty, what is beautiful, what is ugly, and it neglects questions of uh, human feeling and what it's like to exist as a human being. Really, physics isn't concerned with that. So uh, I would say, well, science is good. I mean, I agree with every well-established uh, finding of science. Uh, some of them are not very well-established, but I agree with every well-established finding of science, certainly. 
Um, but I'd say, well, that's not all there is. There are lots of things in the world apart from physical things. And I can give you a short list. I mean, moral truths. It's wrong to kill the innocent. Uh, mathematical truths like two plus two is four. Very simple one, but that's not a physical truth. Um, mental feelings and thoughts, those are not physical. I mean, my feeling, whatever I'm feeling now, you don't know. You don't know what I'm feeling. I know what I'm feeling. Uh, but you can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't feel it. So these these mental things exist. So they're connected with the brain. That's definitely true in the case of human beings. The brain is a sort of instrument for allowing you to have the sort of mental experiences that you have. But those mental experiences are different from the physical brain. So there's a, there's a link, very important link. Uh, but that link could be broken and of course as a christian uh, i do believe it will be broken that is we'll die and uh, our mental experiences will carry on mm -hmm. i can't verify that i'm not dead yet but uh, <laughs> i'm sure it'll happen yeah um so one kind of path i'd love to explore with you here for a minute is kind of like this how um the brain relates to like conscious experience here because you hinted on it a little bit here at the end um and i'm just i'm curious like from an idealist perspective like what is the purpose of the brain um obviously we'd assume that like god doesn't have a brain he's a mind um that's immaterial and things like that so like what why do we have brains what's the purpose of our brain and how does that fit into like the idealist picture of reality right well uh i think uh, to know what human beings are we are animals basically uh so we have a long evolutionary past i accept that we have developed uh, even in the womb we developed from one cell to going through various stages of looking like various little animals and then we begin to look human uh and uh, of course we're born as human so we are developing beings now god's not a developing being god doesn't develop so we have beings with a history and a social history and we are communal beings. Um, we uh, are importantly related to each other. So we want developing social communal beings who learn to understand and create and are free to do things. Uh, all that means you need a body. That is, you that sort of being needs some way of communicating with other people, of seeing who they are. I mean, I'm looking at you now on the screen um, if I couldn't see you, I, I probably wouldn't know it was you. I would, I would hear you, but if I couldn't even hear you, I certainly wouldn't know it was you. So we need something, some medium, a physical medium of sound waves uh, to know that there's somebody there, but you aren't the sound waves, and I'm perfectly well aware of that. So the sound waves are instruments for letting me know that you're there. So I think human minds being communal and developing, that's the very important thing. Uh, and being free to do what is right or what is wrong. Uh, those things need bodies, ways of interacting with a common environment. And uh, that's what we've got. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh... All right.
I just muted myself there for a second. Um, a path I'd love to explore a little bit further here is kind of like the role of the physical or lack thereof in like an idealist picture of reality. Um, because like when I think of idealism, I think of the idea that everything is mental. Um, so there's the physical, while it may like appear that like there's this like purely physical reality, like this computer I'm looking at, it's really not just purely physical. It doesn't exist independent of any sort of mind. Um, so could you talk a little bit like about the relationship between uh, the mental and the apparent physical? Because I think it's something that's difficult to kind of get your mind around like i talked to someone about idealism once it's like well can't i just slap you and you'll just feel the pain and like there's the physical um so what are your kind of thoughts on this question mm-hmm. well these are it shouldn't be difficult to to see that everything is mind because quantum physics more or less forces you into that conclusion mm-hmm. uh, i won't go to all the technical horrible details but oh, uh, there, are <laughs> there are experiments in quantum physics which uh show that observation, that the fact, if you observe subatomic particles in experiments, your observing of them changes the way that they are. Perhaps a simpler idea of that is if um, I'm looking at you now and there are various colors on the screen here. So there's colors, blue, some blue. Um, we both got blue, right, not blue. But actually for a physicist, there's no such thing as blue. I mean, blue is a wavelength of light between the infrared and the ultraviolet, and that's what it is. And if there was nobody with eyes and a brain looking at that, it wouldn't be blue, there wouldn't be a color. Blue is invented by the brain, or by the mind actually, using the brain. So we have wavelengths of light hitting the retina of the eye, being changed into electrical impulses, which are totally different in kind, and then going to various parts of the brain, and then only at that stage turning into colors. It's the same with solidity. We look solid with three-dimensional objects, but it's not true. Most physicists would say we actually exist in about 11 dimensions. But, uh, mm-hmm. And what's in those dimensions? Well, wavelengths of various sorts and fields of force and all sorts of things you can hardly even imagine, but not solid colored objects like us. Right? So what you see isn't what there is. That's the first step. Right? So the first step is to say, look, the naive you is to say, oh, what you see is just the same when you're not looking at it. It's not. It's absolutely not just the same. Um, it's nothing like uh, what you see uh, when you're using your senses. So we can separate the real external world from the one that we see and feel and move it. So that's step one. And step two is to say, well, uh, isn't it um, pretty and natural to say, well, that world, which we can't even imagine, which is the quantum world of super strings or quarks or whatever they are, these are actually in the mind of God. That's that's what keeps them going, just as my colors and solidity of objects are made up by my mind, right? So those particles and waves and whatever they are, they're made up by being in the mind of some super being, God, and it's in that sense that they're mental. I mean, so idealism isn't the view that everything is in my mind. It's the view that everything is in God's mind. So there is a physical world. Uh, there is a physical world apart from me. But it's not like anything I can imagine. It's not like this looks like. It's not like that at all. And it's actually made up of ideas in the mind of God. So that, that's the idealist view. And I see once you see that, it's pretty obvious, I think, really. That's the way it has to be. Yeah, it's a very 
Sorry, you missed what you said there at the end? No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's very interesting to think about. Um, we could just be like, so from your perspective, then we're just living in the mind of God. Is that kind of how you'd view it from an idealist perspective? Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, there's a, there's a huge uh, difficulty here about how separate from God are we? And of course, part of the Christian faith certainly is that we are in sin. I mean, we are estranged from God. So we can't be just in God just like that. Nevertheless, the Bible does say we are. I mean, it says that we are in Christ uh, and that uh, my favorite uh, little chapters in the New Testament, you probably know, are Ephesians and, and Colossians. And mm-hmm. uh, they both say, well, the mystery revealed to us in Christ is that everything in heaven and earth will be united in Christ. So for me, those are very important words, in Christ and Christo. They come up again and again, 80 times, more than 80 times in the New Testament. I would have taken that seriously. So I say Christ is divine. We are in Christ. Therefore, in some sense, we are in God. But we are estranged from God. So it's a, it's a dialectic there. Uh, um, I think of that statement in the book of Acts, in God, we live and move and have our being. Uh, so again, that's the sense of that we're not apart from God totally. Um, we are in the being of God, but we are not in communication with what we are in. Right? <laughs> that is the goal. That's what we're aiming at, to be uh, consciously in the mind of God. Most of us are not conscious of that at all. Does that make sense? I think it's a very New Testament view. You know, we are in Christ. You are the body of Christ. I mean, how how more in God could you be than being the body of the Son of God? I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm tracking with what you're saying. Um, I think people listening hopefully can as well. So I thank you for kind of painting that out. Um, and then we will answer if you have live questions again, things you're confused about. Um, feel free to ask those or send those a super chat. We'll get to those. Um, a couple more objections I have for you here before we move on to your, your latest book. Um, what is the idea of how does God create other minds? Obviously, like as a theist, we're going to say that God is like the necessary foundation. He's the like the supreme mind, this omnipotent, omniscient, all these things. Um, but then how does God create other minds that are distinct from God. Um, if, like, in an idealist perspective, um, everything would be contained in a sense within God. Yeah. Well, uh, I would ask you a question. How does anything cause anything? I've got no idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, being a philosopher, I'm full of all these questions. And one basic question that nobody, nobody has ever come up with a satisfactory answer is how does one thing cause another? How, mm-hmm. how do I manage to speak. I mean, how, how do I do that? I don't know, really. I move my vocal cords, but I, I'm not aware of doing that. I'm told that that's what I do, but uh, I just speak. I just do it. Mm. So I don't think you can actually answer that question for any cause. How does it happen? We don't know. Mm. I think you just have to look at what causes what and say, well, that's what happens. You know, So if one billiard ball, snooker ball, uh, hits another one, uh, then the other one moves. Why should that be? Well, you know, well, we say there's a law. Okay, what's a law? Uh, mm-hmm. Whose law is it? I mean, is it written in a law book? No, no. So uh, causal properties are an utter mystery. I just don't see why one ball hitting the other should cause the other to move. I don't see why. 
Um, so it's no problem to me that God creates other minds because I've got no idea how anything creates anything, but I know that it does. <laughs> yeah. So the move here is kind of to say, um, well, it's it's obviously logically possible for God to create other minds. And then like this whole idea of causality really just don't know. Um, so we don't need to like give this like technical, like scientific proof of here's how it's done. Um, we can kind of like appeal to a mystery in a sense because there's no issue with it happening in the first place. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah. I mean, even scientific explanations don't tell you how causes bring about that effect. They just say, this is what happens. Mm. So if you state the law of gravity, you're not explaining gravity. You're just saying, well, one body uh, attracts another body with a force inversely proportional to its distance. And that's what happens. And Isaac Newton himself, who invented the law of gravity, of course, uh, said he didn't uh, know how it happened. He had no idea how it happened. He thought it was God, but, but he didn't really know how it happened. So he just said, well, this is the law. It is the law according to which this happens, and that's all I can. So scientific explanation doesn't tell you how causes produce their effects. It just tells you that they do, and you've got to accept it. So if people say God couldn't create this, that, or the other, I just say, well, uh, you know, uh, why, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like the move that you make here. Um, and then one last kind of objection I have um, kind of brought up here for, towards idealism before we get into your, your latest book is this idea of like, well, would God's mind then be like this ultimate brute fact maybe? Um, like why think that there's a mind at the foundation of reality that causes everything? Like where does this mind, like obviously we're not saying just like what caused God, but like why is this foundation a mind versus like a non-mind? Could it have been different? Like things along these lines, like why pose a mind at the foundation of reality is kind of my question for you for the last um question regarding with this bit on idealism okay well uh, partly because matter is a construct of mind in our case what we call matter is a construct of our minds mm -hmm. so um, i think the universe is a construct of god's mind uh and god's mind is of course different from ours in uh, in this very important respect that god knows every possible universe world that could ever be so mm -hmm. god has knowledge of all possibilities which no human mind could possibly have we can't and can hardly imagine it but we can conceive it and say yeah i could see some being might do that um and uh, it's a difficult concept for philosophers but i i think a, a believer in god would probably say god is necessarily what god is that is god's not just an accident i mean it just doesn't happen there's a god there might not have been you have to say well something has to exist so what's the nature of the thing which has to exist and my little argument goes like this well there are lots of possibilities. There are lots of possible universes in different worlds and possibilities have to exist if they exist at all in something actual. And if you think, well, what could possibilities exist in? The only model we have is minds. If I think of possible things, it's in my mind. I think of them. Uh, we don't have any other cases like that. If you say, where do possible ideas exist? Well, they exist in the mind. So because God is a source of all possibilities, God must be a mind. Right? And God must be necessary what God is. It can't be just an accident or a fluke. Uh, all possibilities have to exist in the mind of God. So God's being is necessary.
Yeah, yeah. Give it, but I, um, um, that's what I go for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's great. So what we're going to do now is transition here to talking a little bit about like your new book, Sharing in the Divine Nature, um, published in Whiffin Stock. Because you talk a little bit about just like what this book's all about, because it has interesting um, ideas with regards to classical theism and the story of the cosmos and things along these lines. It does, yeah. Well, I I take as the the leading uh, uh, question or statement from the Bible at, at the beginning of the book is this. It's from two Corinthians uh, chapter five, verse nineteen. It says God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. So I start from there with a little analysis of what that could mean, and I think what it implies is that uh, first of all. Uh, the world needs to be reconciled. So in some sense, the world is estranged from God, but it's going to be reconciled. So that's looking for a future in which the world is reconciled to God. And God was in Christ. Um, that's the way it's going to be reconciled. And again, that's, that phrase in Christ is very important to me, that the way it's reconciled is that we shall all be united in Christ. So that's the key thing of the book, which, which uh, I think implies that God is in parts of the universe, right? Uh, mm. It's just, there's the universe, and there's God somewhere else. Mm. Um, it's that God is actually in the universe, and God is in Christ. So I think that means there's a change in God, right? That God changes by becoming incarnate. The word became flesh. I mean, this is a change. That's the obvious way to think of it. And so God changes by creating a world and entering into the world. And then God changes again by uh, receiving, reconciling the world into the divine being. So God takes all those who love God into the being of God. And of course, that's a huge change in the being of God because the being of God now includes all transfigured, sanctified, glorified humanity, which Jesus is already there and we'll get there one day. So that's a, a picture of a very relational and changing God, which I think comes out of that one sentence in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, so this has interesting implications for classical theism. Um, the classical theist may want to assert that God is like just um, immutable and passable, like changeless, all these different things. Um, so like, could you talk a little bit more about like the implications for this idea with regards to like the truth or the falsehood of classical theism? Yeah, I've got nothing against classical theism, but I do think it was wrong. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting, it's very profound, but it's based on the philosophy of Aristotle and Plato, really. And uh, though they're great philosophers, that's an awful long time ago, and I don't think there's any reason why we should look to them to interpret Christianity. Uh, yes, a traditional Christian theist will say, coming from Aristotle and Plato, especially Aristotle, they'll say God is um, changeless, cannot change, is impossible, that is, cannot be affected by anything that happens in the world. Uh, uh, and uh, I would then say, well, that's, those words aren't in the Bible anyway. Why, why should you say that when it's not a biblical view? And of course, you then classically um, 
have the explanation that when you need Aristotle to interpret the Bible, but you know, I don't think you do. So I think those are just Aristotelian ideas, which there's no need to accept. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and and the next question I have for you, um, with regard is with regard to the purpose of the cosmos. And if you're listening, I saw at least one question already. We we have about three more questions here from me for Doctor Ward, and we'll answer any live questions. Um, but what's the purpose of the cosmos? Um, in your view, and in this book, because I was thinking about this, like I was at the Grand Canyon this summer, and I was out there at, with my dad at night, and I looked up, and there were just so many stars, and we have these like this giant cosmos and we're like this little speck on this little planet. Um, so you talk about like um, the purpose of the cosmos and how that kind of plays into your picture here. Yeah. Well, I think this is a, a hard thing for some Christians to really come to terms with uh, because probably Jesus as a historical figure uh, didn't know that there were lots of galaxies in the universe. I mean, he, his human knowledge would have been um, that of somebody of his day. He was mm -hmm. truly human after all, as well as being divine. But in his human knowledge, he wouldn't have known about the galaxies. So that's new information. In fact, we've only known it since 1925. It's quite incredible, really. Until 1925, nobody on Earth thought that there were stars beyond the Milky Way. Hmm. They thought the Milky Way was it. That was the end of the universe. Now we know the Milky Way is just one galaxy among billions of galaxies. And those billions of galaxies each have billions of stars and billions of planets. So that's a very different expanded view of the universe. And I think that uh, I go for that statement in Ephesians and Colossians. The mystery is that everything in heaven and earth, so that's every galaxy, every planet in the whole universe, is to be united in Christ. So that's a huge inflation of our expectations, you know. I mean, traditionally, Christians thought, oh, there's only the earth. And in fact, there's only really basically Jews and Greeks. I mean, there's no, no Americans or anything like that. And uh, so uh, they will all be united. And perhaps they're not very far away up in the outer sphere of the heavens, you know. but. That we can't believe that anymore. I mean, that's just that's just wrong. And so, since 1925, and in fact, perhaps I should remind people that, uh, that the Big Bang theory was invented by a Roman Catholic priest. It's not an anti-religious view. It's <laughs> it's actually based on his religious belief. And um, and Copernicus, of course, was the first person to say that uh, the Earth revolves around the Sun, and he wrote a book about it and didn't get into any trouble. There's nothing about that. So, uh, science and religion have always gone hand in hand, really. Um, there's little arguments from time to time, but uh, really they, they complement one another. So I want to say this revised view of the universe does mean, I think this is what lies behind your question, that uh, there are many ways in which God might be involved with beings on other planets, with alien beings, and they too, will be included in Christ. And one of the joys of heaven will be to meet little green men from Alpha Centauri or whoever it happens to be. Um, and the universe will be much wider and richer, but we'll all be united. I mean, the purpose of the cosmos is that this universe, which began with just a big bang, which began with uh, unconscious, uh, uncomplicated, unorganized simplicity 
and evolved into the rich, complex, integrated world we have now and will go on evolving, all this will actually be find its fulfillment uh, in a communities of rational, intelligent, free, responsible beings in Christ. So I think the purpose is that we should all be in Christ and find our fulfillment there. Right? So the point being, Jesus is only one incarnation of God. The only one we know about. Maybe the only one. But if there are other planets, and there are billions of possibilities after all, billions and billions, if there are any other planets, I'm sure that God would have be being incarnate there too to lead them to that final unity to which we're all going. I mean, that's a fantastic vision of the future. And I think that's implicit right back in the New Testament, even though their view of the universe was that it was very small. But still, what they said was true. It's just the universe is much bigger than they thought. So in your view, then, um, it's totally possible that we may have like aliens, as we call them, or some sort of beings. Um, so when it talks about all the nations rejoicing, it may not just be the nations on Earth, but all the planets kind of rejoicing together in fellowship with God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I very much hope so. <laughs> yeah, I got to admit, that's a pretty cool picture. Um, so that's really awesome. Uh, one thing that's really interesting here is you talked about the cosmos changing the divine nature. Um, so maybe some classical theists are out there like biting their teeth, like what's going on here? Um, God can't change. Um, so could you talk about like what that, what, what you mean by that and the implications of yeah. that? Well, I, I think there are some respects in which God cannot change. For example, God cannot change completely into a frog. I mean, God can't do that. Uh, God can't become evil. Uh, God has to be loving. So God is changeless in existence, in love, in power, in goodness, in knowledge, changeless in lots of ways. Those things don't change. But at the same time, God is changing all the time, according to the Bible anyway, uh, when he, for example, talks to Abraham, talks to Moses, has a conversation. You know, he even changes his mind. And there are at least three occasions in the Old Testament when God changes his mind. And on one occasion in which God says, I never thought of that. I leave the detectives uh, to find out where that is. Um, mm -hmm. It's in the Hebrew, of course, so be careful of your translation that you use. But uh, the, um, the change is good. Now, here's the point. Aristotle, the great demon behind all this uh, traditional view of God, is that uh, change is bad. That if you're perfect, you would never change because you could only get worse. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And I just think we don't think that anymore. We actually think change is good. Um, uh, it's You're not becoming more perfect. It's just perfection consists in continual change. Right? You could change without becoming more perfect. You know? um, in fact, I'm getting less perfect every day, I think, but I'm still changing. However, it's possible for a being not to change in perfection. You say, no, God's always maximally powerful, maximally good, maximally loving, always. But God has to express this in particular relationships of changing in relation to people. So, and that's the clue. If you think relationship to people, uh love in other words is important 
And I think there's a little text in the New Testament which says God is love, agape. God is self-giving love. So you have to say, to whom does God give himself? And if God gives himself, isn't he changing by doing this? Isn't that some sort of change? He needn't have done that after all. Uh, so I, th I just think change is a very biblical idea of God. And, and you just have to think, well, don't let Aristotle confuse you. I mean, it's, it's just that God has changed us in all good respects. Uh, but actually, relationship is a respect in which, which entails that God must change in relation to the beings that God is uh, communicating with. Mm -hmm. My, my apologies, I muted myself. Um, that's great. Uh, one last question I have for you, and then we'll open up um, to Q&A if anyone has questions or super chats. We'll be sure to go through a few of those. But how does evil play into this picture? Because some people may say, well, we have um, this cosmos that's supposed to be um, kind of like God created and um, contained in a sense within God. Um, but like we have all this evil in the world. Um, so how does this like the problem of evil and such play into this picture of this cosmos coming into um, from like the chaos? and evil that we may see now into like this beautiful picture that you're talking about, Keith? Well, I mean, that I can't answer that question in um, a few minutes, but <laughs> I would say if you look at Genesis and the, the Bible there, um, chaos is what is the first thing that things start from. The Tohu uh, Vabohu, the great deep uh, over the surface of which the spirit blew or the wind blew, rather the great deep, that's the deep of chaos. And in the Old Testament, God fights with Leviathan, the dragon of the deep, the great monster of the deep, chaos, uh, until the last day. So, uh, And that's in Isaiah, that the, this, this war is going on. And I think that's the nature of the biblical revelation, actually, that chaos, the world comes from chaos. Uh, and it's ordered by God, but chaos is never... Uh, during our existence and the historical existence is never eliminated. God fights something and God fights the forces of anarchy and chaos. And that's a very profound biblical insight, I think. And so you can't just say that God created everything good. I mean, it was good that God created, yes. But in that first creation of God, in the symbols of the Genesis story, there's the serpent, well, where did he come from? Uh, there's Leviathan, where did he come from? And there's the great deep of chaos and anarchy, where did that come from? Well, they came from God. Uh, so somehow they're uh, involved in God's plan for the universe, that it should be not just all perfectly perfect from the beginning, but that it should develop and evolve through trial and error, through free choices that often go wrong, uh, uh, but will be redeemed. Uh, so it's a, a universe progressing from chaos to to heaven, really, to paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I really do think it's, it's a, I agree it's a hard question, but the biblical view includes that. Um, you know, God says in Isaiah chapter 40, I kill and I give life, I wound and I heal. Uh, and that's the way this universe is. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. Um, and what we're going to do now is we're going to head into a little bit of um, Q&A. So we'll have about 10, 15 minutes here to answer some questions. The first one is from Apologetics for All, um, great channel from Josh. He says, how would idealism interact with modality in possible worlds? Um, so what are your thoughts here, Keith? Okay. Well, I speaking as one idealist, I can't speak for all of them. Uh, I would say that uh, all possible worlds exist in the mind of God. And their modality is that of possibility. I mean, they're possible worlds. And uh, a real question for people like me is, well, how can possible things exist? And as I say, the only analogy I've got for that is in a mind of some sort. So the modality of God's uh, thoughts is possibility. So there are lots of possibilities in God. That's another sort of um, uh, difference from the traditional view. From the traditional classical view, there are no potentialities in God. I mean, uh, God is purely actual, right? It's nothing possible. But I think God contains lots of possible worlds, any of which could exist. And then the modality of actuality, I mean, modality is possibility, actuality, and necessity, okay, logical terms. Uh, and the actual word is some of those possibilities are made actual by God. And necessity, that modality, is, is, um, is the property of God, only God, really, only God is necessary. Uh, but God includes all the truths in the mind of God, which are necessary, like moral truths, for example, uh, or mathematical truths, uh, possibly some truths in physics. But I, you know, uh, so that, uh, yeah, so interact with modality. Yeah, I think idealism would interact very well with modality in the sense of establishing possibilities really exist in the mind of God. Actualities are made actual by God, and necessity belongs uniquely to God. He exists by necessity, or in all possible worlds, as Alvin Antica would put it. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Thank you, Keith. Um, we have another question from Kay Darby. He says, first, just want to say how thankful I am for Keith. Um, his role played, his, he played a big role in my intellectual engagement with Christianity many years ago. And then he says, um, does your idealist framework interact with the problem of divine hiddenness in some unique way? And I was thinking about this too, because if everything is a sense contained within God, um, maybe like even like the bed I'm looking at in front of me right now, like maybe God's not appearing in the way that I want him to, but in a sense, like I'm like inside, like I can see God in some sense. So what, what are your thoughts on this question, Keith? I do think it's true that uh, uh, if we are in God and God is in us, I mean, Christ lives in us, uh, then there is a, a unity of divine and human. And I think that's very important. But as I say, the, the truth, the Christian way of putting it is that we are estranged from God. We are in sin. Uh, some, and that's what stops us being aware of the presence of God. I think if, if we are not mired in greed and hatred and pride, uh, we would know God. I mean, God. It would be as natural to be aware of the presence of God as it is to see the trees. Uh, we'd like that. But because we don't uh, allow ourselves to know God, because God is love, and actually love is a dangerous thing. I mean, it might make demands uh, and you might have to give some things up. Uh, so lots of things that might prevent you from seeing God. And I think that's the state of the world that we uh, we are in, in, in greed and, and hatred. Uh, and the Bible uses the word pride usually. Um, and so that self uh, 
putting ourselves first stops us from seeing the presence of a personal reality underlying everything. And I think you can see that even in ordinary morality. If, if we don't see other people as making moral demands on us, we're not really seeing them as people, just seeing them as objects. So although we see the face of being just treat them as objects, that would be wrong. So in the same way, we, we're not fit to see God, really, uh, without us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Um, another question here we have from Dan Breeden, which says, are we talking about like objective idealism and like the metaphysics of like Thomas Hegel or Schelling? Um, and would it imply like a panentheistic picture of reality? Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Like, do you, would you adhere to like panentheism or something along else, else along these lines? Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question. But again, um, I don't like words which put me in a box. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, panentheist, well, obviously in a way, yes, because we are in God, So, uh, and yet God is much greater than we are, but God does include us. So yes, in that sense, but there might be other things that I wouldn't go along with. If you say that word, you might say, ooh, so mm -hmm. you believe this, I'm, I'm not be sure. I want to try and stick to a biblical view as much as possible. Um, and you've got this dialectic, I think, of, of saying that we're estranged and yet one with. And you've got to hold both of those. So I don't think, to put it like this, that we're totally depraved, right? That's a doctrine I don't like. That we are, I know you could argue about this over the words, but I don't like the idea of total depravity, that, that you're just totally apart from God. And I don't like the idea either of total unity, so you are God, so that we're all divine, right? But I want something in between where you say, well, um, your destiny is to share in the nature of God. That's biblical. Your destiny is to share in the nature of God. Um, but at the moment, uh, you're estranged, so you're not fulfilling that destiny. Now, I don't know that there's a word for that. Um, I see the word Hegel there. Um, Hegel said in his last uh, lectures on the philosophy of religion at the end of his life, he said, I am a Lutheran, and I believe the Lutheran faith uh, is the nearest things get to the truth which I have myself. <laughs> so I'm not quite a Hegelian. He was a little bit too arrogant for me. I wouldn't claim to have better truth than, than the Christian faith. Um, but um, I've always, any idealist influenced by Hegel, but. Uh, I'd say the difference is Hegel is an absolute idealist. He thinks that we're all parts of one absolute reality in the sense of working out its plans, etc. Whereas I'm a personal idealist, and that is thinking, well, mind is the basis of reality, but it's a personal mind. It relates as an mm -hmm. I-thou relationship. So I want to have my cake and eat it. I want to say I'm parts of God, but still I have that relationship. Some people get that with the Trinity. And, you know, they say father and son, they're both divine, but they, they relate to each other. I want something like that between us and God and say, um, yeah, well, we are in God, but but uh, it's like a marriage, really, which is, again, a biblical view of the relationship. Marriages have their bad parts and uh, they've got to be worked through. So um, I'm not sure that Hegel, well, Hegel's just too complicated. So I'm not a Hegelian, though he's obviously insofar as anybody can ever understand Hegel, uh, 
he'd be a resource. Um, he would probably be, he would stand to people like me as Aristotle stands to traditional theists. Uh, mm. like, oh, that's the philosopher who's influenced my thought. But um, at the same time, I don't want to let them take over my thought. Yeah, you're not the reincarnation of Thomas Hegel here. Um, we wouldn't say that. Um, we have another question here from John Ostaker, which says, um, who are your favorite philosophers, both atheists and theists? So what are your thoughts here, Keith? Oh, historically or alive? Um, let's go do it historically. Uh, well, Plato, obviously. Um, and uh, Kant, Emmanuel Kant. Uh, Bishop Barclay, you know, the British empiricists, uh, Locke, Barclay, and Hume. I, say, I think you say Berkeley in America, but uh, he would say Barclay. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, but he's one of my favorite philosophers. Um, yeah, I think those are my favorites. Um, yeah. Theologians, I like uh, John Macquarie, among recently alive theologians, John Macquarie. Who I think taught a general seminary, or it might have been Union, but somewhere in New York anyway. Uh, and Karl Rahner, I quite like Karl Rahner. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I would do. <laughs> it's so hard. It's like you, there's so many amazing people out there, and I'm like forcing you to pick a couple in just a few minutes here. Um, so you can blame it on Joe Noah, I guess. Um, and strangely, Hegel probably wouldn't be on the list as my favorite uh, philosopher. Uh, and I suppose in the end, I agree with Whitehead, who said that uh, all subsequent philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. And <laughs> since Plato's had lots of different things at different times in his dialogues, I think he's a great resource. So mm. I like Plato. Definitely. I'm sorry, great, of course, but... Um, but uh, he wasn't. He didn't believe in creation at all. I don't think he's a good resource for Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe on that atheist. I don't know. Um, we have probably time for one more question here um, from Curity, which is an interesting one with like possible worlds and stuff. Um, and when we refer to possible worlds, we only get semantic information. Would it be valid to say that the modality of some worlds in God's mind is that they actually don't exist? So like maybe like God didn't actually like create the information or something along these lines for these worlds to exist. They just kind of exist in his mind and they weren't like created. So how do you kind of look at this uh, question here? Yeah, that'd be okay. I think possible worlds uh, are not actual worlds. There is a big difference. Uh, there are worlds which could exist. And actually, there are some worlds in God's mind which couldn't exist, even though they're logically possible. That is to say, worlds with absolute evil dominant from beginning to end. I mean, that's, there is a, such a possible world, and it would be in the mind of God, but it's not creatable. So actually, God's necessary property, his changeless property of goodness, of perfect goodness, would prevent God, internally prevent God, not anything outside God, but internally would prevent God from creating a great many possible worlds, actually. So lots of possible worlds which are not creatable worlds. Mm. I don't think there's yeah. a modality of creatable, but let's invent one. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's great. Um, one, one question here to wrap things up, um, again from Jonah, which is getting back into classical theism, which says, did the issue of God's changing knowledge force classical theism to exclude an a-theory of time, uh, which would say that like the past, the present, and the future are all distinct from one another and things along these lines? So what are your thoughts here, Keith? Uh, that's, um, for, God's changing knowledge. Well, I, um, I don't think classical theists would believe, of course, that God's knowledge ever changes. Uh, they'd have to say that God eternally, timelessly, knows everything from beginning to end. Uh, and, of course, that, that for a classical theist is a problem with my view, because I'd say God is in time. That is to say, there are some things that God hasn't done yet <laughs> that God will do. And even God doesn't know what they are. He might know them as possibilities, but if God makes new decisions, then you've got a theory of time such that the future does not exist. The future has no truth value. It's neither true nor false. Okay, The past has truth values, um, and the present does, but the future doesn't. Um, so for, for a classical theist, that, that would mean God is not omniscient. There are things in the future God doesn't know. That doesn't worry me because I think I, that's a condition of God's being free and creative. And that, so I like that. So I think God has changed in all the important things. But here's the rub for a classical theist. I do think temporality, God's time, is real in God. That is God. God does have new thoughts and do new things, but they're limited by the necessity that all these things must be good. Right. <laughs> so again, I want a bit of contingency, uh, a bit of uh, limited knowledge, but also changelessness in that his knowledge will always be of everything that actually exists. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I thank you so much time for Keith for answering these questions and talking about these really big and important topics. Um, to wrap things up here, do you have kind of like any like last thoughts you want to bring up? And then feel free to like share how people can like follow you and your work um, if you wish. Um, well, uh, no, that's great. Thanks. And you're right. So I'm, the recent book is Sharing in the Divine Nature, which is a direct quote from the New Testament. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, uh, I would just like to stress that uh, I think that's a very important feature of the divine life, which perhaps has been a little bit neglected in, in classical theology, though not in classical devotion. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Keith. It's been so much fun. I'd encourage everyone to check that book out. Um, and if I'd encourage you to follow um, Keith and his work. So much great stuff. So I appreciate your time. And if you're new to Adherent Apologetics, as always, I encourage you uh, to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Appreciate that. Or subscribe to the podcast if you're listening via podcast. And then if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash Adherent Apologetics or press the join button on YouTube. Either one helps. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and your support means a lot. So if you do enjoy the channel, please consider doing that on your way out. Uh, but one last time, Keith, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Exactly. Thank you very much. So bye. And thank you everyone who tuned in today. Kirti, Jono, Dan, uh, Mark, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless. Bye. Bye.